Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing all of us here to Amen Conference. Uh, today, we're going to talk about helping people with diabetes, you know, helping them to reverse. Uh, please uh, keep our minds sharp and open hearts that we can understand that only by your grace we can help others and they can be helped. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, initially when I was invited to speak, I was very ambitious. So I want to talk about reversing diabetes and also going to addiction mechanism and then also talk about fasting and prayer. In fact, that's one of my most, uh, it's my uh, uh, favorite topic to cover. I'll cover a little bit of that, how it's related to reversing uh, unbalanced mind. And at the end, we'll connect the uh, frontal lobe and limbic system connection to the story of Gideon and then how it is connected to the loud cry. It was um, 2011 that we understood for the first time scientifically that type 2 diabetes is reversible. And have you guys heard of this study, 2011 counterpoint study? Right? It's pretty uh, well known because we consider this study to be the landmark study to scientifically prove that type 2 diabetes is reversible. The study was done by Newcastle University in England that considered to be um, one of the top endocrinology program in the world. So what did they do? They had uh, 11 patients who were diabetic, average length of about 10 years, and they had a nine control patients who were non-diabetic. And they gave about 700 kilocalorie diet every day for eight weeks. So that in order to control the uh, food intake, what they gave is about two and a half cups of a protein shake and a little bit of salad, like broccoli, to prevent constipation. And these patients received that diet for eight weeks. I know I see your face here. And it's not much calorie. You know, one serving of haystack is about 340 calories. So you're talking about getting two plates of haystack within 24 hours for eight weeks weeks. And every time I do this presentation, I've probably done this maybe 30 presentation on this topic, everybody asks me this question, has anyone died during this study? Praise God, no one has died during this eight weeks procedure. So while they're eating 800 cal 700 to 800 calorie diet, they're monitoring, number one, their blood sugar, number two, glucose production from liver, number three, fat content in pancreas. And when you look at the first thing is the uh, plasma glucose, that you can tell the first week, just one week, seven days of a calorie restriction therapy, the fasting glucose has dropped in those ele uh, 11 patients who are diabetic. Second thing, they measured the storage form of glucose coming out from the liver. And you can tell there's much less of a stored glucose because uh, as you're going into this uh, calorie restriction diet, there's not much storage, uh, the glucose or the being transferred into the fat, into the liver. So there's much less reverse production of a gluconeogenesis coming from the liver after first week. And the third slide is the most important thing. That is a fat content in the pancreas that they were measuring through MRI weekly was showing that their fat content in the pancreas were going down. So the question is, you know, when you can want to confirm that type 2 diabetes is reversible, you have to prove by the level of insulin production without any help, without taking any medicine or insulin shots, right? And that's what they did. 
this is a normal profile of a non-diabetic patient. One day receive glucose infusion. This is their insulin pro production profile. Usually when we uh, receive IV fluid with glucose, your insulin level goes up, responds to the glucose. That's for healthy patient. And then the latter spike is uh, they use uh, arginine, one of the proteins, amino acids, just to confirm the pancreas is not completely dead. Let's say you had a diabetes for 30 years and your pancreas is no longer producing your nearly type 1 diabetic patient, that pattern's not going to be there at the end. So that's just to confirm that you're diabetic, but your pancreas is not quite dead yet. That's normal pattern for healthy non-diabetic patient. Now, that's what I talked about just now. So this is a baseline for diabetic patient. They're lying there in the hospital bed receiving IV fluid of a, with a glucose, right? And then there's no spike of insulin pattern. There's no production of insulin coming from their pancreas. However, they're not type 1 diabetic patient, nor the patients who are diabetic for many years, the diabetes, I mean, the pancreas has completely failed. They still generate a little bit of insulin when you CPR them, when you shock them with the arginine. That's the pattern of a normal diabetic patient who had diabetes for about 10 years. So after first week of a near fasting diet, you kind of see this little jump. Here, they start to produce insulin. After four weeks, after eight weeks, and almost after eight weeks of a calorie restriction diet, these are the patients who are diabetic for about average 11 years. Their insulin production pattern is identical to healthy patients. This is the first scientific evidence that type 2 diabetes is reversible uh, produced by Newcastle University in England. And they call this study the counterpoint study because up to this point, let's say you're a medical student and there's an exam, type 2 diabetes reversible, and if you say yes, they'll kick you out of the med school. Because up to that point, Earth was flat, right? But after this study came out, we realized actually type 2 is reversible. So how does low-calorie intake reverse type 2 diabetes? So with weight gain, we you know, hear about the fatty liver disease all the time. And liver is not the only organ that collects uh, extra calorie in the forms of glycogen and then fat, triglyceride often. In fact, pancreas collects those fatty substances also. And so with the infiltration of fatty substance, like often triglyceride, there's inflammation. It's like a pus inside of your pancreas. And often excessive pus formation with the inflammation, your beta cells are not going to function normally and it's not going to produce insulin. Now, let's say you lose weight and take out those fatty substances, you know, triglyceride, et cetera, from your pancreas, and then your beta cell is able to perform again and produce insulin. That's the idea of it. How the weight loss with a calorie restriction, you can reverse type 2 diabetes, which I just covered. So, you know, after this 2011 study came out, it was so, it's a landmark study. I mean, it's a counterpoint. It's like a, Never, there's no other study that has shown this before. So uh, in England, I, get, I think it's called the NSH or NSH, it's the NIH of the England. Yeah. So they actually gave tons of money because the initial study was done only with 11 patients. And they wanted to collect a lot more uh, patients and do bigger study. And finally, the second study came out, 2016, and again confirmed with a calorie restriction diet up to a certain point, type 2 diabetic patient, you can reverse type 2 diabetes. 
it was so well known when the, this 2016 data came out that New York Times uh, covered the story. Uh, in fact, it was interesting for me because in 2011, I actually gave a presentation in a bunch of the doctors in our healthcare system. I was a medical director for a diabetes education program. And when I gave this presentation, the, many of the doctors in the Dallas area they, who were attending the, present, the CME course, they thought uh, I was a little crazy, you know? And one of the doctors who happened to attend the seminar, he, one day I was rounding or in the hospital, I ran into him. He said, hey, David, I saw your study on the New York Times in 2016. He remembered it. It was so shocking, right? <laughs> But you know, for Seventh-day Adventists, this is not a news. You know, since 1980s, Weimar has been reversing type 2 diabetes with a calorie restriction. You know, there are sanitariums in South Korea. Um, these people literally, you know, when people come in, they starve patients uh, with a very little, except for like a little bit of honey when they're about to pass out, they give them a little bit of honey to <laughs> keep them alive, and then they fast them for, it's very like Korean extreme Asian thing, you know, like fight, you, know, you can do it kind of thing. But I, I've seen that, like these, uh, uh, when I was in high school, uh, one of the famous natural healing sanitarium director came to Andrews University. I was in uh, Chicago at the time, and my sister who was in junior high, a volunteer, well, my mom forced her to volunteer with my mom, and they went to the seminar together, and my sister came back and she said, I almost died. <laughs> but there were people who literally came to that seminar for two weeks. About a week later, they were no longer needing in insulin injections. But I want to put this clause here that after, if you had a diabetes for more than 20, 30 years, and you are on a intensive insulin therapy, like let's say you're receiving five injections a day, the chance of reversing the disease is very difficult. But let's say, like the counterpoint study has shown, if you had a diabetes for 10 years, let's say you're just taking two or three oral agents, maybe uh, one long-acting insulin shot, easily I believe they can be reversed. In fact, uh, when I was a medical director for diabetes uh, education program, patients that are newly diagnosed with di diabetes, they'll come to our program, and within six months, I'll be able to uh, bring down their A1C, not quite below uh, 5.7, but like below 5.6 without any medications. But I have them lose average about 44 pounds. That's the, um, uh, the average weight loss in the counterpoint study. The average weight loss to reverse type of diabetes was about 44 pounds. So the point that I want to make this is this. How did the Adventist, Seventh-day Adventists knew how to reverse type 2 diabetes 30 years before counterpoint study came out, in many cases of sickness, the very best remedy is the patient to fast for a meal or two. That the overworked organs of digestion, I love the phrase uh, organ, organs of digestion because it includes not only just intestines and colons, but also liver and pancreas, exactly right, may have an opportunity to rest. Many times a short period of entire abstinence from food following by simple, moderate eating has led to recovery through nature's own recuperative effort. An abstemious diet for a month or two would convince. I mean, I love this phrase again, month or two. That was a counterpoint study. They did it for eight weeks. And Spirit of Prophecy exactly described it. Abstemious diet for a month or two would convince many sufferers that the path of self-denial is a path to health. Ministry of Healing, page 235. I just want to briefly cover the Asians and type 2 diabetes. You know, now I'm a, 
um, working with a lot of uh, Korean-speaking pastors. And uh, I often get invited to talk to them. And when we are dealing with, uh, in, in my clinic, uh, I don't have a lot of Asian patients in Dallas area. But when I go to the churches, uh, Adventist churches, these are Korean-speaking churches, and 99% of them are Asian. So I just want to cover that the diabetes for Asians and African-Americans and Caucasians are actually a little different. You know, the pathophysiology for diabetes is pretty straightforward. You develop insulin resistance in your peripheral tissues, like muscles, right? And there's a decreased insulin production like we talked about in pancreas. Those two things come together, you have diabetes. Everybody knows this one. However, in 2013, Stanford University showed that there's an ethnic difference. Depending whether you are Caucasian, African-American, or Asian, your uh, diabetes is not, is not quite the same. What I mean is this, is that for African-American population, they, they tend to develop diabetes not so much because of fat accumulation in their pancreas, but because of their uh, insulin resistance in their peripheral tissues. On the other hand, East Asian, like Koreans, Chinese, and Japanese, they tend to develop diabetes from accumulation of fat in their pancreas, what I described just now. And then the Caucasians are kind of in between. And, you know, you think like, Asians, you know, they wear very tight clothes and they're very skinny, you know. But unfortunately, Asians tend to have uh, actually quite a bit of visceral fat compared to their body proportions. So even though they wear very, very tight pants, you know, to be fashionable, but they're full of fat, actually, <laughs> in a way. I mean, okay. So, so this is what we found out. It's a 2015. This study was done by Harvard, UC San Diego, UCSF. I mean, these are top diabetes programs. They realized that for Asian population, we don't wait until their BMI to be 25. You know, you hit 23, you got to screen them. Because it, for them, they don't have to accumulate a lot of fat to become diabetic. And then soon after that study came out, American Diabetic Association gave a new guideline. If you have an Asian background, your BMI is 23, boom, you got to check for diabetes. So how does that work? Uh, you know, whenever I, uh, uh, I, I don't eat meat at, anymore, but uh, whenever I hear about these, uh, there's very expensive meat from Japan. Uh, I forgot the name of the beef. Kobe, yeah, Kobe beef, yeah. And one of the reasons that's so expensive is that it has marble meat. It has a lot of fat. In a way, that's kind of what Western lifestyle and diet does, right? Uh, we kind of sit there, internet and TV, and then, you know, we tend to eat the food that accumulates without exercise. But, you know, in Texas, uh, I used to, uh, was here during internship and residence in California. And when I went to Texas, I found out how the cows are raised, actually. After cows are, uh, the calves are born, uh, about six months after, they are taken into this feeding place. And then they are given a lot of grains to have them grow really fast. So, like, naturally, average cow, it takes about three years to become full-grown cow. But with this uh, grain feeding and having not move around too much, you can actually achieve that target weight of 1,000 to 1,200 pounds within about 12 to 18 months. And that's kind of what we are doing when we are not exercising and you know, eating Western diet, right? We're creating the marble meat in our pancreas, right? So another issue that I just want to cover about diabetes is that uh, Adventist health message, and most of you guys know this, Dr. Walter Willett, he's a... Uh, director of the Harvard Medical School. He teaches at medical school in their public health program. And, you know, his textbooks are often used for our, uh, you know, epidemiology, et cetera. 
And one of the chapters he described is Adventist health study. And as many of us know from Adventist uh, health study from 1970s and 80s, that by doing five things, non-smoking, avoiding weight gain, regular exercise, nut consumption, and vegetarian diet, we can actually reduce our chance of becoming diabetic by 90%. And that is from Adventist health study that Harvard School is using in the medical school textbooks. And this is another study that came out uh, from 2002 Adventist Health Study 2, is that the red uh, column is where uh, you eat everything every day, like, you know, beef, pork, etc. And the orange is where you eat meat less than once a week. And the brown is where you cut out the meat completely, but you eat fish. Green is where you eat dairy products, but no fish. And blue is where you become vegan. You just eat vegan diet, right? And when you do that, this is a Seventh-day Adventist. We're just looking at, you know, before 2002 Adventist health study came out, the Adventist health studies were always comparing the Adventist versus non-Adventist, right? But now we're really digging into church members, you know, almost privacy. And then we realized that when we compare our church members to own church members, when they cut down their uh, diet, from meat eating to less meat eating, cutting out fish and cutting out dairy products, et cetera, their BMI actually goes down. At the same time, the diabetes prevalence goes down. You know, it's really hard to gain weight when you become vegan, you know, because nobody invites you over for dinner, you know, just they, they don't really, you're, you just become isolated, right? Yeah. Anyway, see, I believe that the eight laws of health was given to prevent and to reverse type 2 diabetes. You know, as most of us know this, that, you know, it's amazing how our church was organized 1863, May, and only a few days later, um, Ellen White, Mrs. Ellen White, had this a special vision of health message. And I truly believe that it was a gift of God, from God, to give us this, uh, something this world doesn't have that we have, and that it's an instrument that we can use to spread our message. The work of health reform is the Lord's means of lessening suffering in our world and for purifying his church. You know, let me just get a little bit of water here. <clears throat> so after I finished my uh, residency, I took a job in Cal uh, tech Dallas, Texas as a hospitalist, and I worked as a hospitalist for three years. And then the hospital built this giant outpatient center. And they were looking for someone to run that outpatient center. And um, testing. So, um, <clears throat> so I was supervising the diabetes program. And, um, and uh, so the Dallas area is, a, I guess, part of a, like a um, Bible belt, perhaps. And they're very generous with their diet, you know. So, like, the hospital will have these uh, newly diagnosed diabetic patients, and every time the patients come, and they come to our clinic to learn how to eat healthy and reverse diabetes, et cetera. So any given day, when we first open up the outpatient program, maybe I was seeing average, I think, maybe 4.5 to 5.5 new patients a day. I mean, just they're all newly diagnosed diabetic patients. Uh, at the time, the data showed a DFW area had about 1 million diabetic patients. I mean, there are a lot of diabetic patients. And so they come in. I have handouts, you know, videos to watch, et cetera, and they come in uh, so often every six weeks or sometimes every two, three months. 
And after a while, I realized now we're managing over uh, 2,500 diabetic patients. And I realized it's not really the problem of insulin, pancreas, or lack of exercise. At the end of the day, it's a mind game. There's something about addiction that's really related to diabetic patients. And so I started reading about addiction, diabetes, and the brain changes. And that's something I'd like to really cover here. So in order to talk about addiction, we have to talk about frontal lobe. You know? The frontal lobe, obviously, is the second most popular Adventist health message, right, vocabulary, after number one being haystack. Haystack is number one. Right? <laughs> so <clears throat> what is our frontal lobe? You know, everybody knows this. Frontal lobe is our brain's uh, command center. And um, there are main three functions there. Number one is the future consequences. Like, you know, we know from 1970s Stan uh, marshmallow study from Stanford, right? The kids are given uh, one marshmallow. Now, if you wait five minutes, you can get two marshmallows, right? And then what happened at, at the end of the study? They followed these students. What happened? Those kids who waited for five more minutes for two marshmallows, they end up having higher degrees. Their average uh, SAT score was uh, 200 points higher and their BMI was lower, actually. And then what's really interesting about that uh, marshmallow study, there's a two-part to the marshmallow study. This was actually done not by Stanford. It was done by uh, Cornell University. And uh, oh, by the way, uh, I'll be more than happy to share all my PowerPoints. So if you guys want the PowerPoint, just let me know. I'll email you guys everything. So this was done 40 years later. The guys who worked for the Stanford University went to Cornell and invited this uh, uh, children who now became like mid-40s, right? And used the functional MRI to see, is there any difference between the kids who just ate the marshmallow now or waited five minutes to eat two marshmallows? There was a difference. The kids who waited five more minutes, they had a much stronger brain activity in their frontal lobe versus the kids who ate instantly had a much stronger activity in their limbic system. See, the frontal lobe is where we wait for the bigger reward longer. We make long-term consequences, calculations. Second thing what the frontal lobe does is uh, that's where we make a moral decisions. This study was done, uh, this is actually a review of studies uh, from 2013. And after this, there are so many other studies that came out. Uh, in the Spain, what they did was uh, they collected all these brain scan studies done with uh, morality issues, and they found out when they superimpose all these imaging studies, the frontal lobe is where people use most of their brain to make a decision to do good or to do bad. So that's the second function of frontal lobe. And then third portion of the function of the uh, frontal lobe is the frontal lobe is where we control our emotions so that you know, we can be angry, but we do not act on our anger. That's what the frontal lobe does. So the other side is the limbic system. What is the limbic system? Limbic system is located a little lower in our brain. And uh, they tend to deal with uh, fight or flight response, appetite, reproduction, emotional response. So if we um, do not have frontal lobe and just have a limbic system, this is how we will behave in the church board meeting sometimes, you know, <laughs> right? Praise God for the frontal lobe, right? This is, keeps us uh, civil in a way. But limbic system is all, it's not all bad. You need a limbic system because of, through the limbic system, we have a biological survival mechanism, meaning like when we are hungry, we eat because we have a limbic system. You know, through the limbic system, we make our children, right? And then 
the emotional response is, is a part of our motivation. If someone has no activity in their limbic system, they're completely depressed that they cannot have no motivation. They're not going to wake up in the morning. So you need the limbic system. But the key thing is we have to have a limbic system that is controlled by a higher power, which is the frontal lobe. So briefly, talking about the limbic system and motivation is that, you know, when we exercise, we experience thirst, right? And then we drink water. And as we drink water, within the limbic system, we have a brain's reward system where it generates dopamine, right? And it becomes a part of our experience, a part of our memories. So next time when we are exercising, uh, we can wait a little bit, right? And exercise for that the reward of a cold, refreshing water, right? The motivation through the limbic system comes from mesolimbic dopaminergic pathway. It actually starts in our limbic system that generates a dopamine that we feel pleasure. In fact, in life, what makes all of us happy, those four neurotransmitters, dopamine, endorphin, oxytocin, and serotonin, believe it or not, they actually all come from limbic system. You know, it's our part of a biological motivational system to wake up in the morning. You guys all remember the story of Peter. You know, he wanted to tell Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem for the third time. It's really good to stay here. You know, we can enjoy all those four neurotransmitters and be happy, right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You aren't offensive to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. And I, I think Jesus is trying to describe the limbic system here. When we are mindful of things of man, when we are only wanting to be satisfied of the things of this world, right? We're just living based on the limbic system and those four happy neurotransmitters. There's something in the frontal lobe that we are supposed to respond from God and suppress our sometimes even our desire for satisfaction to do God's will. So, from the Bible, this is what I believe. Addiction is when the things of man becomes greater than the things of God. In fact, the word addiction uh, in Latin is adicus, which means a person enslaved for death or death. And uh, it's quite interesting. Like All the addiction specialists describe addiction process of hijacking. The limbic system is hijacking your frontal lobe and then the rest of the brain. In fact, that's what happened. If you look at the just a neural pathway of the dopaminergic pathway. It starts from the limbic system, which generates the dopamine and controls the frontal lobe and the rest of the brain. So once you become the slave of the limbic system and those four happy neurotransmitters, absolutely, you'll be hijacked. You know, you guys will remember this in 2013. Uh, there was a controversy to be politically correct or not to consider whether obesity is considered to be disease or not. And, and during the time, a very important article came out from NIH. And it was written by Dr. Nora Volkow. Have you guys heard of her? She's very famous, right? She's the a director of National Institute of Health on the drug abuse. And she's a, probably number one person when it comes to addiction. And this is a very article, and that's a picture of it. And she describes what addiction is like. You have this uh, uh, delicious, this is not veggie burger, it's a regular burger, uh, that hijacks your hypothalamus, which is part of your limbic system. 
And then once the limbic system is hijacked, it hijacks the, I mean, controlled by the, the food, then it controls the frontal lobe. Same thing with the drugs. It goes directly to your limbic system, the reward system, and then that hijacks the frontal lobe. And this is not an Adventist health message, by the way. I don't think Nora, Dr. Volkow is an Adventist, but she just put the health message for us right here in the picture. So the limbic system takes over, and then after that, the frontal lobe becomes a slave. Right? So what is addiction? When the limbic system gets greater than frontal lobe. You know, what's so interesting about this is that Steps of Christ actually describes this. You know, when Steps of Christ was originally written, you know, the very first chapter of Steps of Christ was not there. The first chapter of uh, Love of God was actually added after 1888 experience. So the very first statement of original Steps of Christ started like this. Man was originally endowed with noble powers and well-balanced mind. Well-balanced mind. He was perfect in his being and in harmony with God. His thoughts were pure, his aims holy. See, I don't know the actual brain scan of the Adam, but it was kind of like this. This is Adam's brain scan. He had a very strong frontal lobe, and the higher nature was controlling his limbic system. He had a very balanced mind. But after sin entered, what happened? Oh, before that, so, you know, this is how the Adam was acting. With the future consequence and moral decision, we're controlling his biological survival mechanism. But after sin entered, what happened? This is a very second paragraph of chapter 2 of Steps Christ. But through disobedience, his powers are perverted, and selfishness took the place of love. His nature became so weakened through transgression that it was impossible for him in his own strength to resist the power of evil. To me, that just described the symptoms of addiction right there. That his limbic system becomes a source of his motivation. He's no longer able to control his emotions, cravings, etc. See, addiction is a result of an unbalanced mind. You know, I believe the purpose of health message and three angels' message is to reverse that cycle, the, the trend. The limbic system taking over the frontal lobe, back to the where frontal lobe is controlling the limbic system. And that is the only way we can overcome. Let me just get a little bit of water here. In fact, ministry of healing describes that result. The body is to be brought into subjection. The higher power of the well-being are to, the, I believe the higher power, even every time spirit of prophecy described, is our frontal lobe. The passions you know, from our limbic system are to be controlled by the will. We'll talk about the will issues at the end, which is itself to be under the control of God. That's God's grace. The kingly power of reason, sanctified by divine grace, that's the power that we do not have that God gives to us, is to bear sway in our lives. That's the sanctification. That's how we overcome addiction. Sorry about that, Aaron. Unfortunately, we do not have that power. But that power comes by the experimental knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, transforms man into the image of God. So by the experimental knowledge of God, our frontal lobe is again able to control our limbic system in the image of God. Gives to man the mastery of himself, 
bring every impulse and passion of the lower nature under the control of the higher powers of the mind. Isn't that beautiful? That's the sanctification. Through the experiment knowledge of God, the God's grace, that's not it within us. That's the gift of God that we can only receive from God. When it works in our frontal lobe, then we'll be able to control ourselves. And that's the purpose of gospel. The very essence of gospel is a restoration. What kind of restoration? The grace, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our frontal lobe to control our limbic system. So, how does addiction develop? You know, my patients, uh, <clears throat> after about maybe third or fourth visit, many of them actually decide to give up meat, even in Texas. I mean, that is really hard. It's like trying to not stop breathing, you know, sometimes for some of our patients in Texas. But, you know, they all say, giving up steak, chicken, doable, but cheese is impossible. Have you guys heard that from anybody? Yeah. You know why? Because the cheese is like a crack cocaine. That's according to L.A. Times, not according to me, L.A. Times. In fact, it was the 1980s we found out in dairy product, in cheese, there's a heroin-like substance called casomorphin. And that, you know, in fact, in this study, they concentrate that and give it to the laboratory mice. They act like heroin addicts. I mean, they'll abandon their children to have more cheese. Yeah. The question is, why would God put uh, heroin substance in milk? I mean, I look at this picture and think, how cruel is God, right, to do that? Well, it's a biological survival mechanism that we talked about. You know, when a baby is born, by drinking mom's milk, their limbic system generates dopamine. And from that experience, they create the lifelong lasting uh, bonding with their mom. You know, I'm not saying moms are drug dealers, but it kind of, it, it's kind of like that in a way, biologically. In fact, I want to tell you a story that when my son, who's uh, five years old, uh, he was about six months old at the time, you know, I was holding him. You know, when I was in medical school, both of my parents were killed same time in a motor vehicle accident. So uh, whenever I like see our, my children, I, I kind of feel, I think about my dad a lot. You know, so I was holding my son, six month old, and I was thinking, wow, this this is how it must be for my dad to hold me, right? And suddenly he was looking at me. I was looking at him, and I was just saying, you know, this uh, this kind of uh, euphoria. And then suddenly he launches and then try to get milk from me. <laughs> I was so shocked, you know. So I, I just pushed him away, you know, <laughs> and. And since then, our relationship has never been the same. <laughs> you know, it's, it's because that I wasn't able to satisfy his limbic system, right? Yeah. Anyway. But I just want to briefly just review. All of you guys know this. Advanced health message and dairy products. You know, let me ask you this question. Who drinks milk in nature after they are weaned up? Which animal? None, right? In fact, when you look at the Harvard study that came out in 2016, when you replace all dairy products in the patient with the nuts, the chance of their having cardiovascular disease goes down by 24%. This is a study from University of North Carolina uh, last year that they looked at the patients who drink milk. When you drink one cup of milk every day, that increased your chance of having a cognitive decline 
by 10%. You know, we already talked about dairy product with Adventist Health. So dairy product is unnatural and unhealthy and also it's addictive. And that, that is why health message was given to us to give us this warning that cheese should never be introduced into the stomach. You know, like our, I go to a Dallas, uh, Fort Worth Korean Adventist church and we have a large youth group and they're mostly like uh, high school and college children or students. And then after I gave this uh, presentation on dairy product, because they have a pizza dinner like once a month, they never invited me again, you know. But uh, that's okay. But, you know, not only I find the addiction mechanism in the spirit of prophecy, but also I find in the book of Romans. You know, when I was growing up, uh, my mom, uh, she will love She'll pray. She, my parents had a very difficult marriage. My mother was only seventh Adventist in her family, and my father was a uh, anti-church. Period. He was an orphan. He grew up very hard, and he didn't like the fact that my mom was going to church, and uh, especially going to Seventh Adventist church. There are too many. Don't do this. Don't do that. And my dad didn't like that at all. But my mother was uh, like a woman of prayer, and so we had uh, this very old, inexpensive house in Chicago. And uh, whenever my mom will wake up in the morning and she'll pray in the morning, and her prayer will become a, like a morning alarm clock, and I'll hear her prayer and I'll wake up. And when I was in junior and high school, I'll wake up and I'll read a Bible every day. So I'll finish the Bible once a year. But whenever I uh, come to the book of Romans, it was just uh, painful. You know, as a mind of junior high and high school, even when I went to Andrews, you know, I had a theology professor. You know, they're lecturing Book of Romans. And it was just a, um, like a, just very lost, you know. It, was just a, it wasn't clear to me. But when I started studying addiction medicine, then I understood. And when I started reading Ellen White's writings, and then I understood. See, Romans 7 is trying to describe there are two different types of law. There's a law of God, and there's a law of sin. And Desire of Ages describes it in a very clear manner. It said, the law of self-serving is the law of self-destruction. You know, when we follow the law of the limbic system, you know, when we live our lives just based on our satisfaction, those happy neurotransmitters, we are following the law of flesh. And at the end, it's a destruction. However, when we follow the law of self-sacrifice, instead of going after the satisfaction, but going after God's dictation, the moving of the Holy Spirit, we actually follow the law of self-preservation, the true law of God. So what is the flesh in the book of Romans? Ellen describes here, the lower passions have their seed in the body. So it's a part of our body like limbic system, right? Work through it. The worst flesh or fleshly or carnal lust embrace the lower corrupt nature. The flesh of itself cannot act contrary to the will of God. So this paragraph describes exactly the function and location of the limbic system. But it also shows how our body was created in such a way that our frontal lobe has a power to control our limbic system. But with sin, we lose that power. Through disobedience, steps Christ, uh, page 17. Our frontal lobe became weak. And then our brain became unregulated. 
And that's what Romans 7 describes the flesh. And then results of our life becomes the law of sin, the law of self-serving, ultimately the law of self-destruction. In fact, in 2015, uh, Cambridge University gave this review of what addiction mechanism is. Simply, the result is this. There's a connection between frontal lobe and the limbic system, frontal straddle connection, the network. When there's a very weak connection between frontal lobe and limbic system, the results of these patients are most likely to become more addicted. You know, it's so much easier to uh, preach theologically or, you know, scientifically, but uh, it is really hard to tell people to give up their addiction. You know, it's very hard. I remember this is one of my um, health seminars that I've done with my wife. She always wanted me to point out that this is my wife here. And that at the time, she was pregnant with our second child. She really wants to point that out. So, and um, I invited um, uh, our clinic, hospital patients, et cetera. And about 70 people came to our church to receive health message and also health, healthy cooking and also the three angels message. The pastor gave a good sermon. So we put it like maybe four-hour presentation. And one of the patients of mine who came, she's a very sharp Jewish lady who retired from New York area. And she came, she, became, uh, to, uh, she came to Texas, became my patient, and came to this seminar. And she told me that, Dr. Lee, I agree with the, everything you said at the church. You know, I love the message you gave from the Bible, the importance of the law, um, the health message, and also the cooking was great. But she said that, um, but you know, some of your church members did not look that healthy. She said that, yeah. And then at the time, I was going to tell her that those unhealthy-looking church members recently converted from Judaism. But, but actually, before that came out, um, it's a God's grace actually held me down. So I, I wasn't able to say it. You know, it, it, is so, it is so much easier to give presentation. But, you know, we all have our own struggles, right? And it's a battle that we fight, but we just have to lean on Jesus and receive his power. That's the only way. Without God's grace, there's no point. You know, Adventists, we understood this addiction mechanism for many, many years. In fact, the early writing describes Satan's brain. And this paragraph describes the brow which was once so noble I particularly noticed his forehead commenced from his eyes to recede. You know, it shows that how his frontal lobe has shrunken for thousands, I don't know, millions of years, rejecting God's grace. You know, we call this frontal lobe syndrome. And what is the result of it? He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. He's following the law of self-preservation, Right? And here comes a Jesus to show the law of self-sacrifice. This is the mind of Christ. You know, he was born with the body of Adam after sin. It says the form of bond servant. Here is a clearly so servant to brokenness. But fortunately, he was born of the Holy Spirit from day one, right? Only by the power of grace, he was able to overcome. You know, when um, 
my family first came from Korea. I was uh, 13 years old. And before that, I never had a nacho cheese my whole life. And uh, unfortunately, at the time, the Chicago Central Korean Church, uh, they, they were healthy, but they still loved cheese. And so we had uh, this uh, potluck. I think it was actually dinner. And I remember eating the nacho cheese for the first time. It was, uh, it was just like, wow. And at that moment, I understood why my family wanted to come to America. You know? <laughs> it's a, this is what American dream is, you know? But that's exactly what happens with addiction. Uh, this is a 2017 University of Michigan. Like when we like something and then we keep doing it, our actually brain pathway changes. And the connection between wanting to do things to actually doing it, in figuratively, get it shorter and shorter. In fact, this change, habit formation, we call it, from MIT study shows, it actually happens within our limbic system. It's our actually lower nature that generates our habits. And after that, when we're stimulated by the taste or smell, or all the senses, visual stimulus, and then the memory is triggered, and through that memory, we experience a cra craving. And after that, we do this over and over because, you know, the, the world, especially through the power of Satan, is trying to make this world very, very uh, stressful. You know, I gave this one presentation on a stress and uh, health message. Is that if you look at eight laws of the health, it's a counteracting all the stresses that we're getting from this world. That's what eight laws of health is, right? So when we experience a, a stress, the first part of the brain actually shuts down. is a prefrontal lobe. You know, we realize that prefrontal lobe is a part of the frontal lobe. That's the most important part of our brain. It happened to be the most delicate also. So God created such a way. When we are stressed out, which causes brain atrophy, God purposely kept the front prefrontal lobe to go into like a sleep so that it's not damaged by the stress. But through the stress, during the time when we are experiencing stress, we actually become very limbic because there's no prefrontal lobe, frontal lobe controlling our limbic system. And that's what happens. With the stress, with the cue, we get into these habits. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I'll do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. And then after a while, we develop tolerance toward the things that used to make us happy. You know, in economics, they call it law of diminishing margin of utility. In Medicine, what happened is uh, you have a down-regulation of dopamine receptor. So the first bowl of uh, nacho cheese was great. But the second time, it's not as good. And third time, etc. But because we have developed a habit, and because we experience the stress, so next time when we experience the stress, the habit comes out from the limbic system, and we go for more nacho cheese. Yet, we do not experience the satisfaction. And that's what Solomon went through. Vanity of vanities. So what is the final destination of the addiction? With the brain damage, we become more impulsive, we lose judgment, and we start thinking delusional thoughts, and we lose empathy, and ultimately we lose willpower. That is the final destination of addiction. You know, we all know this. Um, alcohol shrinks your brain. But also, 2016, Australian study shows if you consume heavy concentration of sugar, 
which is a, you know, alcohol is a different form of sugar. We actually shrinks our brain also. It only takes 12 weeks. And with the addiction, oftentimes we experience frontal lobe suppression and we become impulsive. And then we make poor decisions. I don't know, you guys heard this news. There's a couple in Korea, South Korea, where both of them are so addicted to the computer program or computer game that their infant baby just died of starvation. The saddest thing of all was that they're actually playing a game that actually feeds the animals in the computer game. And they both end up going to uh, uh, jail. But, you know, that's the final destination of the addiction, the loss of judgment and loss of willpower. I won't go too much on this. And this is where most our patients are, and we are sometimes. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. Steps of Christ, page 47. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? This Stanford study that came out, it's trying to answer that question medically. You know, right now, medical community, we can literally transplant everything, heart, lungs, organs, right? But one thing we cannot give to our patient is willpower. That's why addiction is such a big problem. So is the diabetes, the loss of willpower. So Stanford University was trying to come up with a solution to give a willpower to these patients. So there's two severely depressed patients. They've gone through everything. What they did was that they opened up their uh, brain and they did an intracranial implantation. So these are like electrodes, very, very tiny electrodes. And they're trying to hit the location between, uh, it's called anterior cingular cortex, which is the highest level of the limbic system, but it's also the pathway between the frontal lobe and limbic system. And after they located that place and gave a little bit of electric shock to this depressed patient, they just want to die. They have no willpower, no desire to live. And this is a, uh, I have a video of, of this, but uh, the sound is not the best. But the gentleman who says, it was like a positive thing, like push harder, push harder, and push harder. They've only done two cases of this. But the idea is this, that this gentleman who's so depressed with no willpower, no desire to live, with this power that is outside of him, he was able to experience the willpower again. And I believe this is what... Three angels' message is all about trying to give us something that we do not have. You know, it's interesting that it was the 1950s. We found out the human nervous system is like an electrical system. This is a Reader's Digest, right? So in 1950s, medical community, science found out that our nervous system is an electrical system. But somehow, spirit of prophecy, we knew long time ago that brain nervous system is an electrical current. And I often wonder, why? Why did God want to give us this information? And more to that is this. Remember the story of the woman who bled for 12 years, right? The desire, um, ministry of healing described the healing process. When she touched Jesus, an electric current passing through every fiber of her being. In fact, Spirit of prophecy over and over described the effect of the power of the Holy Spirit in our body as an electrical response. 
In fact, the latter rain experience would be like that. It's like the gentleman who does not have the willpower, but he experienced something that is outside of him and able to do things he cannot do by himself. Man needs a power outside of and beyond himself to restore him to the likeness of God. Desire of Ages 296. It is only by the experience of God's grace we can overcome ourselves. You know, no matter how hard we try, even if we clone ourselves and we fight each other to do something, we're not going to be able to achieve anything. So, what is the true force of the will? It is a power of choice. You know, often when I was a young, man, young boy, um, that I used to do taekwondo, which is a, you know, that my master often tell me that if you have enough willpower, you can break the brake. I said, no, that's just too much, you know. And, but this oriental thinking is that there's enough willpower in, in you to achieve greater things. That's not true. We can only choose to serve God or serve ourselves. When we desire to serve God, that power comes from outside and help us to do it. And only, this is interesting for me, both steps of Christ and ministry of healing use this uh, phrase. Through the right exercise of the will. I used to believe this. Like, if I just uh, have a clean life, if I just do all the things right, then I can do everything. No. It's the right exercise of will. It's simply saying, I want to serve you, Jesus. Help me. And when I do that, I can live the life of faith. Because the power comes from him. There's no power in me. And same phrase again, through the right exercise of the will, you know, ministry of healing, 176, a life of victory over appetite and lost. When we desire to be set free from sin, and in our great need cry out for a power out and, and above ourselves, the powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit. And they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the will of God. Desire of Ages 466. Only when that happens, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I just want to conclude um, the one more idea that I believe that third angel's message and when health message, true health message come together, the loud cry will happen. We all know the story of Gideon. 32,000 soldiers came to fight. But God only chose 300. Why? Do you know why? Because those 300 soldiers, they prioritize responding to God's call more than satisfying their hungers and desires with water. They're very frontal lobe oriented people. And that does not happen overnight. Health message does not save us, but health message prepares us for the latter rain. And those 300 were preparing themselves to receive the calling. The results of the three angels' message and a true health message came together. The result was a loud cry. This message, the third angel's message, is the burden of our work. It is to be proclaimed with a loud cry. 
and is to go to the whole world in both home and foreign fields, the presentation of health principles must be united with it. It here is the third angel's message, but not to be independent of it or in any other way take its place. It is only when the third angel's message in the Revelation 14 is mixed with the true health message the Revelation 18, the loud cry will happen. And for this reason, temperance finds its place in the work of preparation for Christ's second coming, Desire of Age 101. I'll pray and uh, uh, yeah. uh, finish with the presentation. If you have any comments or questions, I'm always happy to uh, uh, share the PowerPoints and also uh, communicate with you guys. And, Emails, yeah, I'll share that. Let's pray and uh, finish this presentation. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing all of us to Amen Conference. We desire to be those 300, to be prepared for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the final power, that we can do the things we can only dream of, desire, but we do not have power of. But we believe your promise. Give us the power to overcome ourselves, to have the mind of Christ, to become your servant. We choose to serve you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org